there was definitely times that it was just like, I cannot believe I am being paid to be here, that I get to be here, that like, there are so many times, also so many times, and many times like, if this audience knew what this person's life was really like, if they saw them this morning, they would have a completely different level of respect for what it took for them to get on stage today. Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Leadership. And today I've got a friend with me. With this friend, I talk about her love for music. We talk about how having a waitress mentality has helped her to be able to navigate so many different areas of her life. This is someone who has worked in with celebrities, with hip hop artists, and um, talk about how she's able to show up as herself even in that kind of environment, as well as learning how to be able to read the room, having transferable skills and identity, not letting people put their identity on you or not letting what other people think about you stop you. As well as a quote she dropped to me, which made so much sense and I really, really resonated with, teach them early what you learned late. And that came about as we talked about parenting because she is a mother of two amazing beautiful girls who are twins we also talk about learning how to be able to let go being a guide as a mother why peace is a requirement and luxury is actually a bonus my guest today is nova browning rutherford she is an award-winning wellness and mindfulness facilitator. She's an expert who works with leaders in academic, public, and private sectors, prioritizing self-care and how to understand and apply mindfulness to their daily lives. She's a sought-after keynote speaker. She's been profiled in magazines such as Huffington Post, Oprah Network. She's a resident wellness expert who has appeared numerous amount of times on Canadian TV show The Social. She's been named one of the top five life coaches in Toronto, and she is a storyteller. But let me stop talking and let's delve into her story. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. Hey, Nova Nicole, how are you doing? Hello. I'm so well. I'm so, so well. I'm very glad to be here. What's the my professional, my <laughs> professional voice. Oh, hello. Hello. What's going on? Like, come on. It's like my like high facilitator voice. <laughs> I'm just glad to be here. It's nice to step behind the curtain with you. We talk often at work and it's nice to just have like a human conversation. As always, I always go way back into the younger version of, of who my guests are. So I'm curious, what were, what were the aspirations for a younger teenage Nova? A teenage Nova was living and breathing and mainlining hip-hop music. I had over a thousand magazines. There was not an inch of wall space. I just lived and breathed it. The liner notes, like who was the producer? Who was the engineer? Like, I wanted to know absolutely everything. So I was obsessed with music. Wow. Who were, who were the favorite artists at that time? 
Because I'm a gangster, um, <laughs> I'm big into like 90s hip hop. And so, well, just because that's what I grew up with. So Biggie, Christopher Wallace is just my all-time everything. But I'm a big Mob Deep fan. I'm a big DMX fan. Like the anger, the passion, like all that. Like I will kick you in the back to some Wu-Tang. I just got tickets to see <laughs> Wu-Tang and Nas. And I'm like, it's going to be violence and mayhem and I can't wait. So I'm the girl in the corner, like banging on the walls, like knowing every word, like music was definitely a common denominator in many relationships for me. That was my my through way in finding my identity as a teenager. Wow. Where did that love for music come from for you? You know what it was? It's my mother grew up in Windsor, Ontario, which is the border city to Detroit. And so I grew up listening to like all Detroit radio, which is like the best. Imagine Motown, right? So I grew up listening. Like I knew the highway exit that I could start getting that frequency. And so just from a very, very early age, I just knew that there was like a whole other world outside of the smallish university town that I was living in Canada Whenever we would go to Detroit with my grandparents for shopping, like I was just transported into this world of beautiful blackness and the music in the stores, the music on the radio, the music said like playing everywhere. I was like, what is this? My parents just put me on to like funk and disco and R&B. And when I found hip hop, I want to say in the very, very early 80s, but I think I just wanted to know everything. It was there was a passion and energy that I connected to. Did you ever want to be a hip-hop artist yourself? I may have performed once. <laughs> the, only, <laughs> the only show. Okay, watch watch me. I, I The only time I ever took the stage, I opened for OGC. Right? Like, original Gun Clappers with like Black Moon and the whole boot camp click. This is like very 90s. I don't know how they were where I was. And just my boys were rapping and they're like, no, come on, rap, whatever. And so I did. And that was the last time I did it. <laughs> did you like it? I like being behind the scenes much more. It's much more my comfort zone. I, I'm not one for a lot of attention. I'm just curious. What was your stage name? Did you have one? No. <laughs> just Nov. My friends call me Nov. So probably just Nov. Is that where that love for music led to you? stepping into your career in marketing and promotions like you did? Oh, without a doubt. So I'm in, I'm a teenager. I'm living, you know, 90 minutes to Detroit, to the West, 90 minutes to Toronto, to the East. And so by the time I moved to Toronto, I'd spent a lot of my formative years, like just, you know, being in trouble in Detroit. I'd lie to my mom and say I was going to the mall. I was like, I didn't say what mall. And I'd go to Detroit and go shopping and get Air Force Ones and like chase gangsters and I should be dead many times. By the time I came to Toronto, I was 19. I, I moved to the city three weeks after high school. And just later that summer, by chance, I was in the hair salon and the program director for the first urban station in Canada was getting her hair done. At the time, it was uh, Flow 93.5. And so we just started talking and she was doing the programming. We just struck up a conversation and I started interning there. And that was the beginning of well over a decade in music. 
what was that journey like for you? You worked with some big names, you got to travel around a lot, and I guess people look at the music industry and look at marks and execs. It's, it's, it's a high-flying kind of job. It must be super dope. I don't know if executive was a part of my title when I started. It was a lot more like street team, but it was very fast. You know, I was 19 and because I, when I began, I was 19 and because I was at this commercial radio station, anyone who came to Toronto, like passed through flow. And so this is also simultaneous when the Raptors were just starting to get really big. So Canada had its first NBA team. There's this urban station. So there's just more happening here. So I met a lot of people. I did a lot of things <laughs> and I saw a lot of things being done and I had to posture and position my like myself in a way that was very firm, but still very feminine. And that I had to manage very, very quickly as to like why I was in the room, why I deserve to be in the room and just navigating this space between like men and women and a lot of perception and projection. Like I got a real read on people very, very quickly. It was a very steep climb. For me, that's a really intriguing thing to be able to start to pick up from that age. Being able to read people, read the room, read the environments. And you talked about being able to stand what I'm going to call firmness and still navigate that with your femininity. And that's something that still happens in day-to-day more than normal corporate life, let alone in the music industry even and that those back in those days then. So how did you... What were the things that kind of helped you to really understand and read the room and read people? And what are some of the things that people can actually tap into now and they can utilize? I didn't have a name for it at the time. I think it's incredible how we can become so adaptable when we need to be. Like when you don't have a choice, well, then I guess we're going to do this and I'm going to pull on all the, the resources and skills that I have and I grew up working in a restaurant. My my grandfather ran a restaurant. I started like working when I was nine. I think he heard me say I was bored one day and I'd never seen so many dishes appear in my life. And so doing really hard, like very hard work, but then, you know, having to be in a very like adult environment and just like show up, like you can't mess around. I had to read the room. I had to know what people wanted before they asked for it. And that I learned a lot of those like people skills from hospitality. And that's how I was able to navigate a room so I could see who was important. I could identify who was the decision maker. I knew who was going to be difficult on site the way you would if you were (laughs) starting your shift in a restaurant. I just I knew how to butter up the people who I needed to. And I knew how to give space to the people who I knew were going to be difficult. And I think what it is, is really just like recognizing that you have so many transferable skills and you can't tell what experience is going to benefit what in future. So it's just all, it's just, I think it's really looking at it from a sense of awareness of like, you know, what is this here to teach me? What can I learn from this? How do I make this count? And what can I, what can I take from this experience to the next step? And then what do I leave behind? Because that's not where I'm going next. So while I, you know, I was waitressing, I knew that I wasn't a waitress, but it gave me a lot of skills that I'm telling you, being a waitress made me a great mother of twins. And it wasn't until I was juggling 
two kids in piles of laundry that I was like, you know what? I have done this before. So it's that sometimes it's that internal clock of knowing that that overwhelm, that heightened sensation of like, it's not as foreign as perhaps my mind thinks it is. It's reminding myself like, I've done this before. It just looked different. I can do this again. Yeah, those words, the wise words, I've done this before, but it just looks different. So often we step into situations and that's what takes over. It's that unknown feeling that makes us just go into overwhelm and anxiety and all that kind of stuff. But even recognition that this might look different, but actually, and the the foundation of it, it's very quite similar to what I've done in the past. So if I did that before, I can definitely navigate this now. And that gives you that sense of assurance to kind of steady up a bit in time to time. Without a doubt. Like, when did I feel this before? Like, the for me, it's like a tightness in my chest or a pressure on my shoulders. And so I pay attention to that. And then I kind of check back in with the thoughts that are rambling around. And then I just can kind of like size up as to what was familiar. And then like talk myself into it instead of out of it. Because there was times like when I'm in hip hop, like there's no wavering. (laughs) Like when you have 50 cent in front of you, you can't like be unsure. You you, like, you have to know what you're doing, but that comes a lot of like self-talk and and self-awareness. But I didn't have the, I didn't have a name for it at the time. What was it like then with big superstars of the ones the Kanye Wests or 50 cents or whoever was the biggest were coming through? Did you ever feel insecure in those environments or did you just show up as who you were? Insecure? No, because I was there for something different. Like I was part of their machine. I was on behalf of them. Like I, I'm represented with a label or or the station or with like management or like I'm part of the machine. So I don't need their approval. I don't need validation. Like I don't really give a fuck. Like just we're, we're here for the same thing, right? We want to get this done. We have a show with like we have a schedule. So let's do it. So I like it gets to a point where it's like you have a job and I have a job and whatever. Now afterwards, it's like, oh, my God, that was cool. But Uh, I think the only time the insecurities came, it was more from the entourage and hangers on because no one, you know, from a distance, a a woman sitting in the VIP section, like nobody knows what I'm there for. I know what I'm there for and I'm posturing because I know what I'm there for. But there's a lot of other women there who are there for a different reason. (laughs) And somebody may want me there for that reason. And no. So I know that like my femininity could get me in some doors, but I didn't want it to be in every door. And it was really on really just like my energy. And again, just my posturing to set that difference apart. So it wasn't about being rude, but it was about being very direct, like a real clear sense of like, I, honey, I'm not the one. You can try and we'll both enjoy it, but I'm not the one. So it's very intentional around setting those boundaries right from the jump. Like, without without it. saying it, without even saying it. it, it like has to be, and not in an icy way, because that's very off putting. Because the, I, I had to leverage my difference, and because I was a woman around like very masculine men, I had to use that to my advantage, but not to their advantage. That was the difference. <laughs> I was a quick study. And I think over time, like there was a peace of mind that came of like, I'm not going to have stress or trouble that perhaps I'd get from another woman with this one. I can like have my guard down. I can relax. 
And that made the work a lot easier for all of us. But it was a headache when the entourage didn't get it. Do you ever feel like in the moment at that point in time, did you feel like you were living your dream? There was definitely times that it was just like, I cannot believe I am being paid to be here, that I get to be here, that like, there are so many times, those are so many times. And many times, like, if this audience knew what this person's life was really like, if they saw them this morning, they would have a completely different level of respect for what it took for them to get on stage today. So there's that. There's like there's the that line of fantasy and reality of being a fan and admiring, you know, super superstar talent and then there's just the humanity of seeing an artist and someone just like pull it together and do their gift in real time like that's a real privilege to be able to witness. So after 6 years in the industry, what happened? I was in music for 12. It felt like oh. <laughs> yeah, for 12. And then what happened? I had grown up. I had gotten married. And at the time I was working with Kanye. And this is in like 2009. And just seeing his like work and the pace for myself, although I'd met lots of people at that time. For me, it was um, working closely with Kanye and just seeing the exhaustion. It had hit Like just something had happened one day and I just, he had a long flight and it was sleeping on the floor. (laughs) It took the cushions off the couch, was sleeping on the floor in the middle of the day. And I just was thinking like, I care more about this person than like the work that needs to be done. I just couldn't help but think like, what would it look like if this person's art came from a different place because someone cared about them? I saw a lot of like, yes, people and hangers on and a lot of people just benefiting from that. You know, they'd become a product. But I remember asking you one day, I was like, when's the last time you had a piece of fruit? And he looked at me and said, nobody asked me that. And I gave him a really loving look. And I said, I know. Like, I know nobody asks you that. And it was then that I was like, who checks in on these guys? Who, who really just checks for them from a place of like sincerity and, and like a sisterly love. I get the pace and the pressure, but can someone be alongside you in the journey? And so that's when things really start to change for me. That's a very different take to what, and this is me looking from the outside in, to what someone perceived the industry is like. Like you said, it's, it's fast moving, fast going, actually stopping to to see and recognize the human as opposed to the product. Was there something that was happening for you that made you actually start to change your lens and start to look at things differently rather than being swept up in how things were like everyone else was? Completely. In that time, like, again, I served 12 years in the music business, like a jail sentence. But I say... (laughs) I'd say like halfway, maybe about six years in, I'll skip the the scary details, but you know, living living a life and a fast life and a light life, like I definitely suffered trauma. I experienced an assault just like being in in that life. I've like seen scary, awful, terrible, terrible things. But when that came to my door, you know, and I went through the highs and lows of like depression and recovery after being assaulted, I started practicing Buddhism when I was 25. And so that was the big awakening for me. 
of just my own healing, my own awareness of just how I was going to cope in that space and process all that I'd seen. And I think it was just a way to like make sense of where I was. So I definitely had, I'd been taking a human lens for a long time. Um, DMX was, you know, the late great DMX was a big part of that. Just seeing the person, it's not on stage. It's like at breakfast, it's with your kids and family. Like you see a real, these are our brothers. Like I know these guys, I didn't have names for it. Like, but when you see someone self-medicating, when you see someone with like depression and anxiety, like you, you see the effects of their real life of real pressure. How could I not care about them in, in totality? Cause they're not a commodity to me again. Like these are brothers, these are black men and that I care about what happens to them before, during and after this music business. And I didn't see a lot of people taking that approach and that's okay. But this was mine. You find it hard talking about anxiety or depression back in that day, because especially in the black community, it was still very much a taboo kind of subject. You didn't really go there. It was just one of them. I was kind of hidden and, and discreet. Even talking about mental health. It wasn't even a word like dealing with some shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, like going through some things. Like, but when you, you know, when you're touring with someone or, you, you know, you're with someone like all day, every day for a month and you see, you know, the private moments in a car ride or waiting and, you know, people have to put their emotions somewhere like that pressure needs to be released. And just by being there, I became this like de facto guidance counselor. I didn't have the words or knowledge or understanding of half of it, but I was holding space before I knew what that was. And so I think, you know, cumulatively over time, and then with my own practice, it started to fit together. I didn't know that it was like mental health or anything like that. But I think with my own practice and my own reflection, I had a different lens on what was happening with the people around me. And so I wanted to to learn and understand how to support in an authentic way. And the biggest thing was like, not to give anybody a reason that they felt like this isn't for me or I can't benefit from this um, because I was, I'd lived a similar life and it was, you know, essential for me, a practice of meditation. You find it hard to walk away from the industry? No, <laughs> no, no, I did not. It just like, you know, once I had like been married, like, you know, there's like a life and a nightlife and I just, the music had changed from when I began. Like, I didn't know what anybody was saying, like to keep up with the trends. I was like, I don't know what, I don't know what you're saying. Like, it doesn't, I have no connection. Does not mean anything? Like, I don't care. And so it's just like my ear had changed. Like I stopped listening as a fan. I've, completely listened just from like, you know, critical, cynical, you know, mind. And it just, it just wasn't fun anymore. And so it became when I noticed myself saying like, I've got to, instead of I get to, I knew that that was time to change. Did you get any pushback from either friends or family who were like, why would you leave this, this space? And why would you leave this? lifestyle that seems so incredible when you decide to make that change? 
Somewhat. Like, not from the people who knew me, because, like, I've been the same the whole time. It's just been, like, layers have been revealed, especially since I began my practice. There's, I think, some people who benefited from the access that that I had or provided or, like, the, the cool factor or, you know, someone can get us in or someone has the link on whatever, whatever. Like, but I don't watch that. Like, find somebody else. So I'm not... I, I I had like, again, I had done it already. And I when I hear myself saying like, I've done that already, it's just time. It's just time. So yeah, I was living in Los Angeles at the time. Like it was a very, very different life and lifestyle. I'm still connected to everybody. Because I, I know, not only do I know where the bodies are buried, I helped to get the shovels, but I still have all those connections. But it's from a better place now. There's no... um ulterior motives like it could the connection is is deeper because they see what i've done with my life and then i'm still authentic I'm, I'm still the same person but we can connect on a different level which is important i think it's quite important for people to, to see you and those who can see you as you are now or even then rather than seeing as who you were those are the kind of people you want around you because those are people who are willing to go on that journey with you and recognize that it's iterative rather than people who just see you very much as a, as I said, as a commodity or see you as a, as a product they can use to um, get free tickets or get free access or whatever. Those aren't real friends. No, and, 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 and seeing that being immersed in that when, you know, there's someone who is the hub of a wheel of an entire industry, because when you're a part of that machine, like you get how that works. And so you definitely know when someone is not there for the right thing, like you can just tell. At the start, you talked about when I asked you around your one-time hip-hop career on stage. You said you like to be <laughs> behind the scenes. So how did you go yeah. from that to stepping into being a sought-after keynote speaker and speaking on stage in front of thousands of people? I tried to hide. <laughs> they can't. They can't. <laughs> so I think what it was, was I worked behind the scenes in entertainment for 12 years. So marketing, promotions, and PR. So I'm at the side of the stage. I'm on the other side of the interview. I'm like telling the person what to say. So I know the the formula. And I also have worked with an audience who is like, speaks plain English. And to communicate, you need to just speak in a very real and authentic way. And so with the skill of communication and the authentic communication, but now I have something to say and a story to tell, it just made sense for me to do that. I started pitching myself at the college and university level just because I felt that that window of 18 to 25 is when people went through a real transition and could really use some supports. And I felt like the pop culture references would probably be an easy entry pick point to have a deeper discussion about like mental health and coping with transitions. And so that worked, but that's just what got them in the door was hearing all this like pop culture stuff. And then I was like, okay, so here's why I really brought you here. <laughs> it's like put you on some game about your brain uh, so that you can recognize like, you know, that all that glitters literally is not gold. Just to share like my own experience, my own awareness, just the journey and the process and letting folks know that they also had some of the same skills where they were standing in early, early university days. So I think it just worked. Like I had the formula, I had the story. 
it didn't, and it was never intimidating to me. I think because I'd been familiar in those environments just on the side. So to be in front of the camera, it didn't see like a, a big jump. In your, let's call it the, the next chapter of, of that career, so whether it's public speaking, whether it's been on, on TV or in publications, what's been one of the most enjoyable experiences you've you've kind of had as a awesome mental health wellness kind of expert? So many, like I really enjoy like a live studio audience. Doing television is a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, especially to do a live segment. It's like three weeks of planning, but um, I enjoy live studio audience. Wait a minute, sorry. Wait, for one segment is three weeks of planning. Right. There's a lot of back and forth. It's about an eight minute segment. So let's say it's an eight minute segment. They'll probably get to five questions, but I have to have 10, 10 questions, 10 answers prepared because it could go any way. Someone may not ask the question that I have the answer for. And so I have to know how to maneuver that in like my talking points because say, you know, I want to make a point, but you don't ask me the question to make it like I got to find a way to get there. <laughs> so and it can be timely doing live television, like sometimes news breaks that morning, which complements the subject that afternoon. So I, I had to do like tons and tons of research, which I love on these topics and be very, very thorough. It's yes, it's a script. Like I know what I'm going to say, but it can't sound scripted. I'm not memorizing it. I just have to be a really good study. So it, it was fun, a, a lot of work, but fun. I love doing a keynote where there's like 800 leaders in the room and I, and they're all talking and I love walking around and hearing the discussions the happening between people, at the table. I really love the Q and a portion at the end of a talk. My, my motto has just been like, I stay as long as you stay. So my Q and A's have often been longer than the keynote. What? It's not unusual. It's not unusual for me to do a 60 minute keynote and the Q and a is two hours. Wow. Especially at the university level. And I come early. I come early to watch the speakers before because I want to know what's being discussed. I want to take the temperature of the room. I come early and I hear the other audience. I just post up where the food is. I'm going to put guys on gate. Post, <laughs> post up where the food is because everybody wants food, especially if no one's eaten. Go eat first because then you get permission for people to eat. And then you just start talking. And I always just ask, like, oh, yeah, I'm speaking today. Can I ask you a question? What do you want to walk away knowing, learning, or having a better understanding of? And I'll ask that about three or four times. And then whatever I had planned, that's out the window. And then I incorporate that into the talk and I'll reference it. I was talking to someone, blah, 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 talking to Peter this morning, and they said they want to talk about such and such. How does that sound? It's often more people want to hear that. And we just go from there. So if people feel heard, they feel engaged, however... I can like build the trust and familiarity ahead of my keynote. I do that. So I would often, let's say I had a keynote speech at nine o'clock in the morning. I would do my own PR and press, do the morning show, do the morning news segment so that when people are getting ready to see my keynote, as they're getting dressed and watching the news, I'm there. So I'm there on the news talking about what I'll talk about. And then I do the keynote and they're like, oh, I'm already familiar with you. I've already heard your voice and seen you. So they're a lot more relaxed. And that I find that always improved the engagement. So doing like little PR tricks like that, it, it just helped. It just helped. And it was a lot of, it was just a lot of fun for me. So you just described 
what to a lot of people I know is an absolute nightmare because <laughs> we're very similar. So we're, we're, we're quite adaptable. We go with ebbs and flows and we don't necessarily use the notes all the time. But generally speaking, especially when it comes to talks, which is what the second worst fear of Edwin apart from death, you're now talking about having a keynote prepared. Not only are you not in the background kind of sweating it or revising everything you want to say, you're out next to the food, one, talking to people, and then you pivot on the spot to go and talk about something completely different that you've prepared just based on what you're hearing from, from the audience. And what's that feeling and transition like for you when you go through a process like that? It's what I have to remind myself is that it's just a conversation. It's just a conversation and I can do that. So that's what I tell myself. And if I, if I came to our conversation today, scripted, rehearsed, canned answers, you could see I was reading. It sounds like I'm reading. Then I feel like I'm being talked at and not talked to. And I came from a world like real recognizes real. And if you're not going to bullshit and pretend you're talking to me, you're going to pretend you're telling me something brand new when you're not like you're just recycling this. It doesn't matter that I'm here. You, this is what you say to everyone. That's the world I come from. And that ain't going to make it. So I keep, I know what I want to say. I know the points I want to land. I know the objective. I know the introduction. I know the close. And I know the three themes and how to transition in between each one. Other than that, it is fair game as to how I get there. But I'm here to serve. So back to my waitress mentality. I'm like, give me your order. What do you want to walk away knowing, feeling, having a better understanding of? And then I serve it to you. And look, you're happy with the order because if I'm giving you something that you didn't even want, then really like, what am I there for? For myself or am I there for you? So being stuck and like like attached to the script or memorizing it, for me, it goes back to a practice of detachment and of just non-attachment. I don't care how I meet the objective. It doesn't need to be a linear line. It's a just meeting the objective. And I can surrender to the process of being led how to get there. I'm there. I'm in the building. I was chosen. The people who chose me are not dumb. So that's imposter. That's out. I know what I'm going to talk about today. And then I asked what they wanted to talk about. So I've got those things on my side. Like if I don't vomit, then it's a good day. So, we're, and I have done that. So we're fine. <laughs> and I have thrown up right before our talk. That was the worst. <laughs> I was very sick with the flu. <laughs> as long as it's not on stage, it's all good. No, hey, nobody, and nobody knows. I say this to my students all the time. Like nobody knows how it was supposed to go. No one knows if you messed up. No one knows. And nobody cares. They really, really don't. If you're nervous, say so. If the air conditioner is humming and everyone can notice it, call it out. Know that you are creating a shared experience, much like an artist, much like the artists that I grew up watching. So it's the shared experience that you're having in that moment in real time. If you can honor that and like create that, that's the intention, then what you do will be different than anybody else. Creating and honoring the shared experience is a really, really important thing to kind of hold on to, especially when you're either talking or in workshops, whatever it's, who is this in service of? And how can I communicate that in the best possible way to ensure that they do have that experience rather than, like I said, being talked at? No one likes to be talked at. No one wants to be talked at. If it's a group of five people or 500, you can just tell. 
You can just tell when someone is like reading a script in their mind and it doesn't, it doesn't feel great. And you don't want to engage. If when a conversation, anyone is approachable. When people feel lectured, then their back is up like they're in school. And that's just not the approach for everyone. From not when you're talking about personal development, not when you're talking about something as personal and, and sacred as like mental health and my own identity and well-being. Like I'm there to listen. I'm not there to tell you about you. I don't know you like that. So I'm not going to pretend that I do. Speaking of identity, shed a little something last week around what identity is. And I'm curious, how do you understand or how have you understood what your identity is over the years, especially as it's changed and evolved? both from a work perspective, from a personal perspective, and as a mother and everything else. How do you define your identity? Great question. I don't know if it could be defined because I, I feel my identity is measured against what's in my reflection at the moment. So perhaps it's that. Like I'm Nova everywhere I go and how I identify will be based on who's looking at me. It'll be very different if I'm looking at you than if I'm looking at my daughter as to how I feel about myself. But I've been here the whole time. So I know who I am and who I'm not. And uh, it's important for my identity to just walk with that knowing so that people do not put their projections or assumptions on me. No, big no. And I don't do that to others. Mm-mm. Not letting people put their assumptions on you as a woman, as as a black woman, a lot of assumptions are made about you, generally speaking already. And there are times when people can carry that and it becomes their identity and you carry the weight of the world or you carry the biases or you carry the racism or you carry some of the struggles that women face on your back when it's not yours to actually carry. And it stops a lot of people and it slows them down, stops them completely in their tracks. How do you begin to, like you've just said right now, not let people put their own stuff on you. You just kind of focus on, I know for wherever I go and I get to decide which side of you I bring out in this scenario. I move based on energy. So, so you're going to decide how this is going to go between us. So you come at me away, like you're going to get it right back. And I know that that's easy to say, but like, you know, I'm a light skin, mixed race, five foot nine, seemingly attractive (laughs) person. And there's a lot of things I had to be like, yo, no, not the one, not me, not here. I'm not here for this. I didn't get here because of that. Like there's all of those things I had to dispel, but I also couldn't let the efforts to like prove myself. That's not it because what people think of me is really none of my business. And I think part of that comes from the idea of like your personality and then persona. So it's like seeing artists with like the persona of being macho when they're really like a soft, cuddly family person, right? You know, myself being on television and someone approaching me and saying like, oh, I know you. I thought, oh, really? What, What is it you think you know? And if you're wrong of what you think you know about me, am I wrong? because I didn't meet what you thought I was supposed to be. I work in wellness and a lot of, there's a lot of ideas of what someone who works in wellness should look like, talk like, live like, dress like. That's not my business. I don't know. I've been here the whole time. So you don't get to tell me 
how this goes. But I'm confident that because I have an applied knowledge I have of who I am and who I'm not, not an acquired knowledge. It's not something I've like read about, like I live this, I does this. So I can speak about my myself, my experience with like conviction and a confidence. And I'd really hope that others can do the same because when you can just like own who you are, who you're not as, as a person of color, as a woman, like whatever your role and station of life is, and just all your wins, like they're yours. And so when you can own that, all those skills and, and everything, then nobody can take it from you. And then when no one can take it from you, then there's no comparison and there's no competition because nobody can do it like you do. What's wrong with people wanting us wearing ask you t-shirts? I can get down with that. <laughs> they they don't know. And that's not for me. Like, I can't believe like you do this or do that, or I wouldn't expect it. But I, I wear hoodies. I, I wear my Ice Cube Predator album t-shirt on purpose. I use hip hop quotables on purpose because nothing has to look one way. Who you are and how you show up in your life, like your own self-awareness, self-management, your own practice, your relationship with God, that's you and private to you. And this is mine. And this is what it looks like for me. And there's no comparison. There's no model that it has to be that way. And I, and it felt when I would be in wellness spaces, when I would be on panels with, you know, white men with white hair and gray suits, that's them. But I'm not here to conform to you. I wasn't raised. <laughs> that was not the world I was raised in. And I think it's important that I carry that with me because I learned a lot in that place and I wouldn't have gotten here without being there. I think the part for those who haven't suffered is that they want the here without the there. Jay-Z said it. He said to be, he's talking about Bobby Brown. He's like, but to be Bobby then was to be Bobby now. And so to be someone at the height of fame and and all of that is to also be with them in their darkest hours when they're alone. And that was the piece that struck my curiosity. Who is this person when the arena is empty and the hotel room door is closed and they're alone staring at the ceiling? Like, who is that? And what's the voice that they hear in their head? We all have it and it's individual. But one is not better than the other. So just like listen to yours. Don't worry about mine. You you don't want to hear it. You don't want to worry about yours. I love that. And as a a mother of two twins, or a set of twins, beautiful. beautiful (laughs) Like two twins of my dad. (laughs) One set (laughs) of two children. (laughs) Thank you. <laughs> it was like, ooh, I don't want one. What's, oh, what's enough? I don't know what's enough. One is. When I had the girls, their birthday just passed. When I had the girls, people were like, oh, so when are you having another one? I said, I have another one right there. I've got another one right there. Get off me. I've proven my abilities. Back up. <laughs> Back up off me. <laughs> Please. What's that journey be like for you growing and developing as a mother of raising those, those two beautiful girls and even looking at the world and life you used to have to where you are right now as well. Buddha said, teach them early what you learned late. One of the best things that I did before having my daughters was three weeks before they were born, I put myself on bed rest. And for three weeks, I just sat and um, reflected on everything. And I really grieved and let go of that self 
and that idea of self, of who I was before I was a mother. And so that when I was able to be the vessel, it wasn't a comparison of like, oh, I, I used to be that, or I can't wait to get back to that. Like I really resigned that that was over. And so I lived in a state, especially those first three months of just absolute, complete and total presence and surrender. My life moved about 10 minutes at a time. I try and just like surrender to the process, trust the motherfucking process is another big one. I have to remind myself that like I've done this before. Like I know my babies. I've been doing this for 35,000 years. Like I had to just trust myself and lean on my own intuition. I think it just comes back to being their guide as that they, my children are of me. They're not mine. And so, you know, going back to that artist alone, staring at the ceiling, if it's an artist or a college student, you know, my children are going to be away from me much longer than they'll be with me in my presence. So how will I be that voice in their mind when I'm gone? Like, what will I have said to them that that sticks and lands? Like, I will be their internal dialogue that sounding board, what will I have imprinted on them? So I'm constantly speaking to them, affirming them. I'm sure it's very annoying to be my child, but like speaking, affirming lessons always because I'm not raising, you know, a five, six, seven-year-old. I'm, you know, encouraging a 25, six, seven-year-old because I'm not there. So things like, you know, you can cry if it hurts. Nothing's wrong. No one's hurting you. Uh, what would you do if I wasn't here? Things like that, simple mantras and affirmations. Um, you know, thank you for cleaning up, but I would love you even if you didn't. <laughs> I'm like, I love you, but I didn't love that choice. Just affirmations for them that I wish I had early, but learned very late. I really affirm in my children and their friends and their friends. That's important too, because mom, mama don't fuck around. So don't, <laughs> like don't, but it's important. The peers, like the parental peers. I don't know if we give enough credit to how much influence we have in the life of our children's friends. That we're another adult, that we can be a trusted adult, a safe place, another voice. Like we're also watching these children. When you think of the village and the community, like does that person feel safe and comfortable with you? Can they talk to you if something was happening at home? Are they watching the way you raise your children and speak to them? And perhaps it's different than their own. Like, do you see these other children or just your own? I think that's really, really important. You know, sometimes it's just a look or a word of encouragement from a, a teacher, a peer, a coach, for good or for bad, that really can shape you for forever. And I know what it looks like the other way. I know what it looks like when someone put me down and that stuck or that stung because I held weight on who they were in in my life or the people close to me. And so all the more reason to just double down and just see some of these children. We know too well what it is to be watched. What does it feel like to be seen? Is that something that you had growing up? Or because how did you begin to, I guess, develop that way of providing something different if you had a different experience growing up? to your children and give them that way of being seen rather than just being watched? I have learned that knowing what not to do can be a gift. The things that did not happen can be a benefit. 
the dysfunction, the like craziness, just even having a front row seat to that, that is beneficial because then I know what I don't want. And so the best advice I've been given is that when you don't know what you do want, know what you don't want, because when you eliminate the negative, the positive becomes clear. So to not have those words of affirmation meant words of affirmation were important. When I was dating, to have someone who was not on time or didn't have chemistry or sense of humor, it just meant that those things were important. So I was able to just like compare and contrast very quickly, just from a place of lack and not have to like, you know, wonder or, or ruminate if like, why wasn't the thing happening? It wasn't about control. It was just being very clear on what I did want versus focusing on what wasn't happening. That's a shift that's changed my life. That's actually the, the word you used there. I was about to say that lack is a really powerful teacher. However, a lot of times that can go one of two ways. You can either create a shift where he's like, I didn't have that, so I want to create that. Or it becomes an excuse of, I didn't have that, therefore I'm not going to do something different. I'm going to carry on the same cycles and keep on repeating that. And you always see that compare and contrast depending on the mindset that the person kind of has. That's why I was very intrigued. Wait, so what, do you, what's, what, what do you want? And sometimes nobody even asks you, what do you want? Like, really? What do you want? Not what you don't want. Now we are afraid of, now we don't want to have, what do you want? So it's the noticing, well, I don't want them to think this, or I don't want that. Well, then turn it around. Duality says two seemingly opposing things can exist at the same time. So I just notice what's on one end of it and turn it around. And it's not easy or lickety split at all. It comes with a lot of practice and an intention and a lot of silence and a lot of solitude, but also an observation of those who didn't get the opportunity or have the latitude to even just have that choice and think about it. And we, we have friends and family members, all of us, who just didn't have that luxury to choose for themselves. We come from ancestors who didn't have that luxury. And so all the more reason, all the more reason. I might as well. I am here now and I might as well get what I want. What do you want? What is the impact that Nova wants to wants to make? I want peace. <laughs> I want peace in my life. I want peace of mind. I want peace in my community. And I want it to be normal for us to have and feel and to know peace organically, authentically, just naturally. That's who we are. And that's not how the circumstances have been, but just peace, ease, lightness, grace, and surrender of just being. I just want to be. Just leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> but peace, real peace. I, I've been in places where I have been alone. And I think in the last two years, we can say like, you know, peace and quiet is not always peaceful. And uh, quiet is can be a very noisy place. And so what does that look like for us as a people to just be with one another and not feel threatened or afraid or worried or ruminating or second guessing? And we can just be with an understanding of where we've been and just really soaking up and savoring the present moment. That's the goal. And to normalizing a way of achieving that, not in spite of 
everything, but because of everything, because of all of it, especially now, I just feel it's just essential, just absolutely essential for our advancement as a people. Powerful. It's peace, peace of mind, peace in the environment, peace in our community. Yeah, I can definitely get down with that. It can be done. We did it for a long time. I think it's who we are. Well, on a foundational basis. Yeah, on a DNA soul level, right? But we can like overthink it and analyze it. And like, and then as soon as you get back to it, you're like, all right, I just needed a sunset. I just needed to hear the water <laughs> lapping against some rocks. Like, I think it's important to have that silence and solitude and just interject those moments of like peace and curiosity and joy, just skipping rocks on the beach with my daughters. Like, I have to ask myself, like, when did you not need so much to be happy? That's a really, really interesting question. I think it's a question that a lot of people have kind of asked themselves the last two years, in particular with the pandemic where it's around, what is it do you really need to be happy when you're not traveling, where you don't have the trappings of wealth around you, as to show it off externally, where you might not see people in certain environments? Like what, is, what does that happiness really mean to you? It's been a question I've, I've had for myself, and I know I've had a number of people I've spoken to about it in the last couple of years in the work that I did as well. So it's a really, really interesting one, which... It's not easy to answer sometimes. It's back to that piece of identity that it's a reflection of myself. What's my identity if I'm next to someone, you, you know, who's wealthy? Like, how do I feel about myself? Or am I comparing and contrasting? Is it different because they are? Or can I just be when it's all stripped away, when it's all gone? If no one was there, who are you? And what do you want? I really feel that that's a place to begin. It's not the end point, that that's a constant. And the integration and knowing of that, like small things every day, all the time, touchstones, like milestones, being intentional about getting familiar with that person and that feeling in the body so that you can be familiar when it returns, that's important. Otherwise, it's going to be external, always. It'll always be something outside of yourself that gives you that value. If it's outside of me, then it's temporary, right? The thinking is if I can give it to you, like a tangible thing, then I can take it away. But if I can't give it to you, I can't take it away. I can't give you courage or tenacity or creativity. I can't give you those things, but you have it. If your family was in danger, I can't give you the courage to get them, but you have it because the opportunities presented themselves. And so now you can reveal what was already there. So how do you continue to like, Cultivate the conditions so that when the moment arises, it's close to the service and, and ready. Okay, you can't, you got to stay ready. <laughs> you you got to be cultivating courage in all kinds of ways, tenacity and humor and resourcefulness and peace in all kinds of ways. Or you're going to find yourself on the beach and your mind's going to be racing and it won't matter then of who's sitting beside you or how expensive that hotel suite is. Not when you don't have the peace of your own mind. And I learned that from the people who had the most, who had the most, and they didn't have the thing I had, the thing that anyone can have. So that, that's what I learned of, about that temporary and absolute happiness. And that's what I'm after. Now, I like nice things. <laughs> I'm a very fancy lady, but it's not 
definitive and it's not essential. Peace is the requirement. Luxury is a bonus. Last question. How do you define leadership? Leadership is how you move when no one is watching. Leadership is service. Leadership is service. And it's not about advancement, titles, a leader thinks of others. It's not selfless, but a leader thinks of others and how they can serve and show up. And I, and I think a good leader in the ways that I lead is that I, when I'm gone from a session or a talk or just from a one-on-one, I want people to feel better about themselves and their own skills. It's not about me. I remember once an audience, I was speaking to the Green Bay Packers. I was in Milwaukee and this uh, young girl, she said, how do you feel knowing that people look up to you? I said, it makes me very uncomfortable (laughs) because I'd rather you look into yourself than up to me. And I think uh, a leader allows that space to happen. I said, I have a start. (laughs) <laughs> voila <laughs> no was a storyteller she does it effortlessly you know I got bars son you know bars for days you know you keep with it I got bars son bars it's always quite good just to be able to have a real authentic conversation and just leaning into who you are but being able to touch them in different areas and really talk on some talk on, on topics that are real Topics that really resonate with some of the people that people think about and we kind of bat away. But actually, when he starts thinking about the fact that love that that bar around pieces of requirement, luxury is a bonus, about leading into curiosity, wellness, happiness, what does that really is? What's our identity? And so much more that we kind of expanded on today. These are conversations that people can just take a step back from really just deep and just start to reflect on their lives. So really appreciate you sharing a little bit of his story today and just delving into that with us. So glad to be here. It's surreal. It's fun to step out and share it. I just figure everyone's life has been like this. (laughs) Glad I was here. (laughs) And this is the leadership. We'll see you next week.